Welcome to BTC Radio. I'm Kevin Mitchell, founder of the Business Travel Coalition and your host. Our guest today is John Byerly, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Transportation Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. John is one of the most sought-after speakers and advisors in the global airline industry. It's a true honor to have him on the show. Welcome, John. Thanks very much, Kevin, and thanks for all that uh, you and BTC do for American airline travelers. Today, we will discuss the role antitrust immunity plays in open skies agreements, the importance of airline entry into U.S. markets, the impact of massive domestic U.S. consolidation, the Gulf carrier issue, and the big story of the week over at United Airlines. Let's get right to it, John. First, what role does antitrust immunity play in open skies agreements? Kevin, as I know you know, but perhaps many of the listeners do not, um, the U.S. Department of Transportation has long required an open skies agreement with a foreign country. It's what they call a necessary but not in itself sufficient precondition for a grant of antitrust immunity. That is, immunity between an airline of the foreign country, with which open skies is sought or obtained, and a U.S. carrier. And I can give you an example. Back in 1996, Germany had to agree to open skies with the United States before Lufthansa and United were eligible to obtain immunity. Now, an open skies agreement is considered necessary because immunity, by its very nature, reduces the number of existing competitors. It allows two airlines, in my example, United and Lufthansa, to com- that used to compete in the market to act jointly to set prices and capacity. An open skies agreement gives other airlines the legal right to enter and contest the market. The hope is that open skies will provide a sort of antidote to the reduction in the number of competitors that results from immunity. But as I mentioned, DOT has made clear that an open skies agreement is not sufficient in itself to justify a grant of immunity. Rather, DOT weighs all the facts in each case, and then it applies statutory criteria that focus on the interests of consumers. To, overfly, to oversimplify those um, statutory criteria a little bit, will the benefits, DOT asked the question, will the benefits of reducing, of, uh, will the benefits to consumers that the joint venture with immunity will provide, do they outweigh the harm of reducing the number of competitors? Now, in some instances, DOT said no to applications for immunity. For example, in the recent request for immunity by American Airlines and Qantas, in other cases, DOT has required the immunized carriers to surrender sizable numbers of airport slots to ensure that new entrants and smaller airlines have not only the open skies legal right to enter a market, but the ability, in fact, to do so. Such cases include the slot divestitures at London Heathrow that were required by DOT of American Airlines and British Airways for approval of their joint venture a number of years ago, and the slot divestitures that DOT recently required from Delta and Aeromexico at the airports in Mexico City and in New York, in, uh, JFK, New York. Very interesting. So antitrust immunity makes airline practices that would otherwise be unlawful lawful, which is anti-consumer on its face. However, as you allude to, there are offsetting benefits for consumers. Can you give us some examples of these benefits and the degree to which robust domestic U.S. and international new entry matters in sustaining those benefits? 
let's turn back to some of the earliest alliances, for example, between Northwest and KLM, the very first one in 1992, or the one I mentioned earlier between United and Lufthansa in 1996. Those alliances allowed the two airlines, uh, in each case having only limited competitive overlap, to offer consumers a better product. For example, more destinations, better connectivity over their hubs, and according to some um, uh, economic research, lower overall prices. Now, of course, when United and Lufthansa received immunity in 1996, there were a lot more independent U.S. and European airlines that could provide really a strong competitive response to ensure that consumers weren't harmed. On the U.S. side, we had American, Delta, U.S. Airways, Northwest, Continental, maybe I'm forgetting one or two, and we had any number of European carriers operating independently, BA, Air France, KLM, Swiss, Austrian, Aer Lingus, SAS, and, and a number more. And they could offer consumers competitive connecting service over their hubs, if not nonstop flights. Of course, it's rather different today. John, how much more important is new entry in this environment now where four airlines control 80% of the domestic U.S. market and three immunized alliances control close to 80% of the transatlantic market? I think it's always been important, but I think it's all the more important today in the circumstances you describe. You know, ensuring that new entrants have both the right and the practical ability to offer transatlantic service is probably the only way to discipline the oligopoly that's really emerged in recent years to dominate the transatlantic market. Consumers need airlines, airlines like Norwegian and WOW, in order to have real choices and benefit from robust competition, not the sort of milquetoast uh, version of competition that oligopolies tend to serve up. Now, this transatlantic oligopoly has arisen, as you mentioned, from airline consolidation. That's taken place in both Europe and the United States. And then you couple that with the broad grants of immunity to the three alliances that the big U.S. network airlines have formed with their European partners, including airline families like the Lufthansa Group and Air France KLM. The airlines and those alliances, as we've all seen, offer an increasingly similar, sometimes almost indistinguishable product, and they're focused on slowing passengers over a handful of mega-hubs like Atlanta, Newark, Frankfurt, and Paris. You know, we recently saw the weather-related meltdown of air traffic in Atlanta. When a mega-hub like Atlanta experiences serious problems, as Delta did with its operations there, Virtually every customer of that airline is affected, even those who aren't flying over the hub, because of the way that aircraft and crews are deployed and scheduled. That's another important reason, I think, to ensure the ability of airlines with different business models to operate and compete. That includes low-cost, long-haul, point-to-point air service providers. Well, the big three U.S. carriers and several of the European partners have asked the U.S. government to limit or even deny entry by independent foreign carriers such as Norwegian and the Gulf Airlines. The three U.S. carriers argue that the playing field is unfairly skewed against them. What's your view of this, quote, level playing field, end quote, argument? Well, my personal experience negotiating open skies agreements, did this with dozens of foreign governments when I was at the State Department, that experiences that the allegation of an unlevel playing field is almost always a gussied-up demand for protection, for restraints on competition, 
and frankly for elevating airline profits over the interests of consumers. Uh, the contention of an unlevel playing field, uh, in my view, is particularly ludicrous coming today from the three largest U.S. passenger airlines. Those three airlines have been racking up profits in recent years that are unprecedented in the history of commercial aviation anywhere in the world. Their employees have enjoyed increases in wages and benefits that far outstrip what other private sector employees in the United States have received. And this point was recently documented in a very excellent, lucid analysis prepared by Airlines for America, the lead trade organization representing the U.S. carriers. But let me be clear, don't want any confusion here. I think it's great that U.S. network airlines are profitable and that their employees are well paid. My concern, and I think the concern of many others, arises when these huge airlines gang up together in an attempt to deny U.S. consumers a competitive choice, whether it's uh, that choice is from Norwegian, the Gulf carriers, or for that matter, from a U.S. US airline like JetBlue, or in an earlier era when they ganged up to fight uh, the entry by Southwest. John, let's switch to the bigger picture for a minute. From the United States to China to the UAE and many other countries, there are unique advantages that the home airlines enjoy, from bankruptcy court reorganization to geography to protected markets. Is there even such a thing as a level playing field in global aviation? And can you put this important consideration into some perspective for us? Kevin, I think you put your finger on the fundamental problem with arguments that call for this so-called level playing field. The reality is that given the huge disparities among countries and their geography, their national wealth, the legal systems, different histories of involvement in aviation, I don't think there's ever been a level playing field. In my view, probably there never will be a level playing field in global aviation. Some countries, uh, I'm thinking of Turkey, the UAE, Qatar, they've recognized in recent years that with today's new long-range aircraft, their geographical position at what some people call the midpoint of the world's largest and most rapidly growing centers of population, that allows their airlines to do what 50 years ago carriers like KLM in Amsterdam and Singapore Airlines did by connecting global traffic flows over modern and efficient hubs. So I agree, geography can be an advantage to some countries and a disadvantage for others. But it's um, hardly as if the U.S. airlines, the large U.S. airlines at least, don't enjoy some very significant advantages of their own, and I can list a few. They enjoy, first and foremost, the financial and political strength of the United States. It's home of the world's reserve currency, the dollar, and it's a bastion of stability. It's quite different uh, if you're operating a hub in the Middle East. By law, the U.S. airlines benefit from the world's largest protected domestic aviation market, one in which foreign airlines are not allowed to compete because of the statutory ban on what's called cabotage. Also, having operated for decades, the big U.S. airlines have accumulated, typically at no cost, large numbers at slots at some of the world's most crowded airports, places like London Heathrow, Charles de Gaulle in Paris, or JFK in New York. All three of these airlines were also able to wipe clean their balance sheets, leave their old creditors holding worthless paper, and start afresh by virtue of Chapter 11 in America's bankruptcy code. That's an option that the bankruptcy laws of most other countries really don't replicate. 
The U.S. carriers also benefit from the procurement rules in the Fly America Act, federally financed air traffic controls, federal and state grants, and tax-advantaged financing for airport construction, and from other programs designed to promote aviation uh, in the United States. I want to be clear. I'm not arguing that the large benefits enjoyed by U.S. carriers are a bad thing. Indeed, the contrary. I think we should all support policies that promote aviation in our country. What I am saying, however, is that swimming in a huge black pot of government support, U.S. carriers are very ill-positioned to label black the various kettles of advantages, large or small, that foreign airlines enjoy. John, the big three U.S. carriers claim that the Gulf carriers have received what they call unlawful subsidies from the governments of Qatar and the UAE. The big three have called on the U.S. government to block all new or expanded service from the Gulf carriers. How does that square with the United States Open Skies agreements with Qatar and the UAE? Kevin, I think the short answer is it doesn't. It doesn't square. And I know there's been a multi-million dollar publicity and lobbying campaign, uh, tens of millions of dollars, it appears. But despite that, the big three U.S. airlines have refused to provide an answer when they were asked two years ago by the U.S. government to name the provision or provisions in the Open Skies Agreement that, in their view, were being violated. They said, oh, we don't want to do that. The term subsidy, the term they focused on, is used only once in those agreements, namely in the pricing article, where there's a very specific procedure laid out to address allegations that prices are, and this is a technical term, artificially low due to government subsidy or support. The big three uh, have steadfastly refused to ask the United States to invoke that procedure, leading me at least to conclude that they lack evidence of unfair price competition and uh, lack confidence in their legal case. Another point, Congress enacted legislation years ago, and this is a mouthful, the International Air Transportation Fair Competitive Practices Act. That law, that act, expressly grants U.S. airlines that believe they're being harmed by violations of aviation agreements the right to petition the Department of Transportation for redress. And the act sets out specific calendar dates that DOT must follow in investigating the allegations and reaching a conclusion and, if appropriate, taking action. Again, the fact that the big three have steadfastly refused the suggestion that they follow the statutory procedure suggests strongly that they recognize the weakness of their arguments. They seem to prefer instead a strategy of bloated rhetoric and political bullying. Finally, if the U.S. government did what the big three carriers have been demanding, namely unilaterally block all new routes and capacity by the Gulf carriers, that would place the United States in clear violation of its open skies agreements with both Qatar and the UAE. That'd be not uh, bad not only for the rule of law, but also bad for American consumers, bad for U.S. manufacturers like Boeing and GE, be bad for our country's travel and tourism industry, and bad for the creation of more American jobs. John, the big airline story this week was United Airlines' incredible mistreatment of an already seated paying passenger ripped from his seat, injured and bloody, and dragged off the plane to make room for a United employee. In fact, United took everybody else off the front page this week. Do you see any connection between this incident and the airline competition issues that we have discussed today? I do. I think there is a connection. And there's a lead editorial on Wednesday um, in the New York Times, and I think they got it right. 
Uh, they describe the horrific abuse of a paying passenger, which you've mentioned. And the Times editorial board concluded, and here I'll quote, as long as the big airlines face neither rigorous competition nor a diligent government watchdog, they will be able to treat customers like chattel and get away with it. Now, I understand DOTs investigating this incident, and there are many voices in Congress and elsewhere asking whether current denied boarding reg regulations are sufficient. I think we need to await a careful analysis of that before jumping to conclusions. And in general, I'm not a big fan of more and more regulations, but we do need to let the market work. What's clear the absence of robust competition empowers the big airlines to put their profits ahead of their passengers and feel secure that they won't face any consequences because those customers have no real choice but to continue flying with them. Open skies agreements are our best guarantee in international markets that there will be competition and that consumers will have a choice. In addition, in the domestic U.S. aviation market, Open Skies provides airlines like JetBlue and Alaska the flow of international travelers from foreign partners that allows them to sustain air service between U.S. cities and continue to offer an alternative to the big three. As you know, uh, Oscar Munoz, the uh, CEO of United, like his counterparts at Delta and American Airlines, would like to rob U.S. consumers of that choice by undoing our Open Skies agreements with countries like the UAE and Qatar. Those three airlines also banded together to file on at least four occasions against the grant of authorization to Norwegian, and that would violate our open skies agreements with the European Union. That's shameful. It would be a horrible result for the flying public, and unfortunately, I think it's all of one piece with the recent outrageous incident on the United flight in Chicago. Well stated. John, thank you for your many valuable insights today. Kevin, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this edition. For the entire team here at BTC Radio, thank you for tuning in.